Hi and welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life B-Sides. I'm Ren Levy. In our previous episode, we talked about how hackers can steal NFTs, oftentimes by exploiting vulnerabilities in the code of third-party exchanges and marketplaces that store these blockchain-based works of digital art. Today, we'll be talking about an entirely different threat related to these third-party exchanges, one which does not involve any malicious actors at all. What happens when an NFT marketplace goes under and disappears. You would imagine that the user's NFTs are perfectly safe. After all, the blockchain itself is still there, right? But that's not how things work in the real world. Jason Bailey is the co-founder and CEO of Club NFT, a company building the next generation of tools to discover, protect, and share NFTs. Jason is an early collector and proponent of crypto art, and he spoke with Nate Nelson, our senior producer, about the risks facing sellers and buyers who are unfamiliar with this new technology. Enjoy the interview. Tell me the story of the time that you lost some of your valuable NFTs. Yeah, early on, we didn't know that these things were going to be worth a lot of money. We were basically collecting to try to support artists and build out sort of a new system. So we weren't uh, incredibly fussed about it. But at the time, this is early 2018, Xcopy, who's now a very well-known artist whose work sells for millions and millions of dollars, was experimenting by trying to put out his first NFTs on a platform called a, a Scribe. Um, and a Scribe had actually been around for a while I saw uh, Xcopy's tweet and bought the first few NFTs for about a dollar each. Um, again, most people had no idea what these things were or that they were ever going to take off. Um, but then several years later, actually, it only took several months later, when people uh, were no longer really interested. There was sort of a mini crash in NFTs in 2018. A scribe shut down um, and I could no longer access my NFTs. At the time, it wasn't as big a deal because these things were perceived to have very little value, just, you know, a dollar here or there and sort of be experimental. Um, but in 2021, I ended up getting offers for you know, five, six million dollars um, if I was able to recover those early um, uh, X-Copy NFTs, uh, which I've never been able to do successfully. So does this problem of exchanges that hold your NFTs shutting down uh, still happen anymore? Yeah, it's crazy, actually. When 2021 hit and we went from, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent on NFTs to tens of billions of dollars being spent on NFTs, I realized no one had solved any of these issues from 2018. Some people thought, ah, you know, like, this will never happen again. And like, chicken little, like you're talking about the sky falling, or you're, you're worried about too many things. Uh, but shortly after we started our company, about a month after we started our company last year, um, a very popular platform called Hick at Nunk shut down uh, overnight with no real notice. But more recently, um, I think everybody's familiar with the FTX collapse. Um, even people that don't care about cryptocurrency at my Thanksgiving dinner table were all 
talking about FTX and um, SBF. And so when FTX collapsed, they had um, an NFT marketplace and we're already seeing that the NFTs from the FTX NFT marketplace are now pointing to nothing, uh, broke, pointing to broken images. So uh, the one that sort of made the news, uh, they did, they partnered with Coachella to do sort of NFT ticketing. Um, and it looks like those NFTs are broken and, and um, it's kind of spreading throughout Twitter. People are a new generation of collectors are realizing that when marketplaces don't follow best practices and use things like IPFS and they're just storing images on their personal company servers, when they go down, those NFTs break uh, and it's a real problem. We're going to break down um, what happened to you and what happened to Hicket Nunk. FTX and so on, starting with the fundamentals. So firstly, uh, just what basically are NFTs? Because I'm not sure that many people and maybe even some who buy them understand it fully. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so I like to keep it sort of high level, um, starting with explaining the acronym, right? So NFT stands for non-fungible token, which can sound like a real mouthful. Um, but the the way to look at it is that um, they're essentially tokens or pieces of code that live on the blockchain. And per the term that you used, the token on the blockchain points somewhere? In the case of most NFTs, about 90% of the time you have the token, which is the code that lives on the blockchain. And then it has permanent links out to uh, either the, the artwork or the description or the metadata. And that's because while the blockchain is is really cool, it's actually not very economical for storing, um, you know, medium to large files, things like images and metadata, right? So the token itself lives on the blockchain, but only about 10% of the time does the artwork and the metadata and all that other stuff live there. Most of the time you have these links that point out um, to where the art and the metadata live. Okay, so then where does that artwork that's associated with that token live? So I talked a little bit earlier about how sometimes uh, th those files live on a private server, which is kind of bad because if the marketplace goes out of business, um, there's nothing you can do. Those are sort of permanently broken. So that's about 40% of Ethereum uh, NFTs rely on private servers. And if those marketplaces go out of business, you're, you're kind of screwed. But about 50% of them use something called IPFS. And what is IPFS? IPFS stands for Interplanetary File System. It's a distributed um, file system where the uh, uh, based on content addressing. So, when in, in the case of NFTs, when you upload your images and your data, um, a unique hash or link is created uh, based on that. That comes out from the NFT. And anyone really, as long as they have the CID, uh, which is sort of the the um, address to the different components can then pay to um, keep it running on IPFS. Um, and if for some reason it's no longer uh, available on IPFS, if no one pays anymore, if the marketplace goes out of business and stops paying, um, as long as you have all the files, you can restore them or upload them um, later on. Jason mentioned IPFS, and although this technology has been around since 2015, I'm guessing that most of our listeners are not too familiar with this neat piece of Web3 technology. So, what is IPFS? Firstly, we need to ask ourselves, what is the problem that IPFS is trying to solve? Well, say we have a file, a web page, a video, whatever, and we wish to make it available on the World Wide Web. 
The way things usually work is that we upload the file to a server, either a private server we own, or more likely a server in the cloud. And when we want to access that file or share it with others, we use a URL, an address that points to the location of the file. As we all know, this addressing scheme works fantastically well, but it has its shortcomings. One such shortcoming is the growing dependency on big cloud providers, the Amazons and Googles of the world, which makes the web less distributed and more centralized, hence reducing its resiliency. Another shortcoming is greater susceptibility to censorship. If a file exists in only a single location, it's possible to delete it or make it unavailable. Enter IPFS, short for Interplanetary File System, created by Juan Benet, a California-based software engineer and entrepreneur. It's a distributed file system, a sort of synthesis of several pre-existing and well-proven ideas, the Git versioning system, the BitTorrent network, and distributed hash tables, or DHTs for short. The IPFS network is made up of many interconnected nodes, which are users, people like you and me, who installed the IPFS software on their machines. Each node holds a fragment of a larger data structure called a DHT, distributed hash table, whose function is to map each piece of content to the particular node or nodes that store it. This raises the question, how does the DHT know which node has what content? The answer is that each piece of content is assigned a unique string of number and letters called a CID, content identifier, and each DHT entry associates a particular CID with the IP address of the relevant node or nodes. So to tie it all together, say I want to make my file available to the world, but this time with IPFS. The first thing I need to do is download the IPFS software, which is free and open source, of course, and feed it my file. The software splits my file into smaller chunks and assigns each individual chunk a unique identifier, the CID. It then adds an entry to the distributed hash table that maps these CIDs to my computer's IP address. Other nodes can also cache my file and serve it in a distributed manner. Note some interesting aspects of this scheme. One is that the CID of a piece of content, its unique identifier, changes when the file changes. That is, each CID points at a certain version of the data. This means that files stored on the IPFS are resistant to tampering. A change in a file does not overwrite the original data, but simply creates a new version of it. The second is that since IPFS is a distributed file system, many nodes can host the same piece of content with the same CID, and if one node goes down, the other nodes can still provide it. And third, the hash table itself is cryptographically secure, which means that it's resistant to tampering and censorship. Naturally, the IPFS has its own shortcomings as well. The most notable one, probably, is that file sharing might be very slow at first when the file is present on a single node only, until it's cached in other nodes in the network. 
Another is that the IPFS is just as useful for malicious users as it is for every other user. There have already been phishing attacks that used HTML files stored on the IPFS, and at least one botnet was found to have its command and control hosted on the network. Still, the IPFS offers some interesting use cases, such as hosting websites without any servers, for example, and of course, storing large files such as digital works of art, and then putting the immutable permanent links to these files on the blockchain. And now, back to Nate and Jason. All right, so that's the art. What about the token, though? Where do they end up stored if I, say, hit purchase on an NFT on OpenSea or Rarible? If you buy a token and you're on a platform, like most platforms, when you buy that token, the token goes um, into your wallet, right? So if you own like a, a MetaMask wallet for Ethereum, for example, part of what's cool about buying an NFT is that um, as soon as you click buy, the uh, contract, smart contract is set up so that your funds go to that artist um, and that token immediately comes into your wallet. Does it ever not? go to your wallet? Like, do, do people ever lose the tokens themselves to third parties? It used to be more common that there were some uh, NFT marketplaces that actually custodied the NFT for you. Where we usually see that is if a marketplace wants to accept credit cards and doesn't want the people that are collecting NFTs to have to understand enough about crypto to, to create their own wallet. What they do is they would accept the credit card payment and by default, the marketplace would actually keep the token uh, right? because in, in those scenarios, they're trying to appeal to collectors that may not even have a wallet to send it to yet. Right. And they're thinking as well, eventually these collectors will get educated and they'll learn what a wallet is and then they can proactively ask and we can transfer that token into their wallet. Right. Um, but. Uh, the problem, again, is when marketplaces go out of business, if you are if you don't know enough to have custodied that token, then it's often uh, difficult, if not impossible, to go to a defunct company and try to find someone who is in charge of custodying those tokens and ask uh, asking them to, to send them to you. So let me give some specific examples. Um, Rare Art Labs um, in 2018, uh, when they were trying to survive, thought, well, maybe if we accept credit card payments and simplify this process and don't make collectors have to create their own wallets, uh, we can just by default, we'll custody the token for the collector. Well, then they went out of business, right? Uh, and in a lot of cases, uh, people had bought NFTs that never made it into their wallets because at the end, uh, they were de facto custodying the, the token um, at the at the marketplace, right? So a few of us were lucky. We knew um, sort of the founders and even three, four years later on, we were able to work with them and get some of the tokens back. But I mean, that's sort of unusual, right? That you would actually know the founders and be able to do that. Um, another example, and again, I don't mean this necessarily as a negative thing, and they would explain some of the, up, the upsides for why they do this, but Nifty Gateway is a very popular um, NFT marketplace today who also accept credit cards and by default, I believe last I checked, still um, custody the tokens and don't send them to a user's wallet. Again, with the idea that they want to expand who can collect NFTs. Now, the problem is when they go out of business, if people don't have the token in their wallet, um, then it can be problematic. Sort of like not your keys, not your crypto. A lot of people have heard that, like you want to be able to custody 
um, the, the crypto yourself, because if there's a, a collapse and you're depending on a third party, you're kind of out of luck, right? It sounds like the subtext here is that less sophisticated, newer investors who maybe don't entirely have their grasp of like MetaMask and all of the principles here are the ones who are at most risk because the platforms trying to cater to them are less secure. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, absolutely fair, right? That uh, if you come into this space thinking that um, you just spend money and buy an NFT and like you don't have to do anything to preserve or protect or understand what it is that you bought, um, I, I think you're you're in for a learning experience. You're pretty steeped in this space, Jason. From your estimates, what's the likelihood that more exchanges shut down, taking down everybody's NFTs along with them? in the near future. We're just now starting to see sort of the downturn in this wave of NFT interest. Um, and uh, we're, you know, with FTX marketplace collapse and a, a couple others that um, have reached out to me that I can't actually share details on. I'm assuming, and I'm, you know, pretty, uh, been collecting for a long time and, and pretty tight with a lot of people in the space. I'm assuming 2023 uh, with a downturn, both in uh, the NFT and crypto markets, but also many people predicting um, sort of a, a global recession that will see marketplace consolidation, right? So last I checked, uh, I did a manual count and we had like over a hundred different places online, marketplaces where you could go um, and buy NFTs. I don't think we're going to see that as uh, sustainable during the slump. And what happens, um, you know, when you see sort of a, a slump like this over the next year is usually marketplaces um, start to shut down. Uh, I think we'll see that happening in increasing numbers over next year. And um, unfortunately, those marketplaces probably will carry with them uh, NFTs that cost much more than the ones we were buying in, in 2018. The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. Cyber Reason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation-centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. The Cyber Reason predictive response capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit cyberreason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. So we've established the problem. Uh, what, in your view, is the solution that allows people to feel comfortable that they won't lose their NFTs to third parties. So we talked a little bit about how you want to make sure that the token itself is in your wallet. That's really step number one. Make sure that you actually own the thing that you bought, that you have control over it, that it's in your wallet. The other thing is to understand NFT construction. Not all NFTs are created equally. So I really, really encourage people to stay away from NFTs that store the artwork and the metadata um, on private servers owned by the marketplace, right? 
uh, rather than buy NFTs that store art on private servers, which are, um, you know, kind of doomed if the marketplace goes under, really uh, love IPFS and encourage collectors to buy uh, NFTs that uh, use IPFS and encourage them to try to pin their own collections, right? That way you're not just relying on the marketplace to make sure that the images and the metadata stay um, uh, active and, and available on IPFS, but you um, as well, you know, sort of add some redundancy there. And that can sound nerdy, but you have to remember people have spent, um, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases on NFTs. So taking a few steps just to make sure that you have complete control and aren't dependent on third parties um, is really prudent uh, in, in this case. I understand that from the perspective of not wanting to give up control, have your your valuable NFTs in somebody else's hands. But People lose things all the time. I lose all the things all the time. And people get hacked. Um, it would seem to me that by virtue of giving people full autonomy and control over their own NFTs, you close one door, but you open another. Um, for example, uh, OpenSea has been hacked in, in multiple different ways this, this past year, one of which being uh, phishing attacks. People get phished. They accidentally sign over their NFTs to an attacker rather than OpenSea when OpenSea is migrating their smart contract. Is it possible that more people will lose more of their NFTs with the solution that you're suggesting, even if in principle you're saying something good, because simply this is a lot of responsibility? Yeah, I, I guess it is po probably possible. I mean, I think we all know that uh, Web3 requires people to take more responsibility for themselves, right? You're sort of um, trading the option of having sort of like a, a help desk that you can call and ask to undo things. If we use like currency as an example, if um, if someone steals my credit card because I'm not careful with my credit card and, you know, there are some charges on there I want to contest, I can go and tell somebody, um, you know, call someone at my bank or my credit card company who, you know, functions as sort of a middleman and say, hey, that wasn't really a charge of mine and they can, you know, uh, remove it or cancel my card or something like that. If, if someone gets access to my wallet for my cryptocurrency, they can go spend all of my money um, and there's literally no one I can call for help, right? It's just sort of this decentralization, self-sovereignty, you know, Web3 approach where, uh, where we become more dependent on ourselves uh, to do the right thing, but less dependent on other third parties, um, which, you know, for many uh, would, would argue it kind of gives you more freedom um, and independence. Uh, but yes, you, you absolutely need to educate yourself and take responsibility for your own actions. And uh, you don't have that help desk um, that you would have with something like Web2 in a lot of cases where you can just go and ask somebody to sort of undo or assist uh, with, with the problem that's happening. I get that. But oftentimes when we have this conversation, when I've had this conversation with other people, they do boil it down to like being educated, being responsible, being a savvy investor. But I know from experience that there's there's a little bit even more than that, because if you have your, your tokens or your crypto or whatever it is that sits on the blockchain associated with like a hardware wallet, then suddenly you have something the size of a USB that you have to protect like your, your life depends on it. And, you know, maybe there are some people who are so responsible that that could never be a problem for them. But the fact is, things like that can get lost, they could get destroyed with with sometimes events that are out of your control. Um, the problem then, I could imagine becomes, you know, you back in the mid 
2010s, we're talking about that this is the future, right? Digital art, NFTs are going to be the next big way to experience art, to collect art. If everybody needs to be so intelligent and so responsible, I, I know a bunch of, I, you know, you've met people, not everybody is going to meet that standard. So can NFTs ever be for everyone if they require such a threshold to participate? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's part of what's exciting about this space, right? If you think about all the major uh, technological innovations that have happened over the last you know, few hundred years, there's always sort of a set of nerdy early adopters who can take on the risk and learn um, enough about the tech to operate relatively safely um, before the tech has really matured and become easier for the masses. And I think we're still in that stage where um, there's an enormous amount of opportunity for people to build out solutions that make onboarding to cryptocurrency and to collecting NFTs much, much simpler without diluting the upside um, and control and self-sovereignty um, that come with sort of current solutions. So uh, I'm really high on the idea that um, those sorts of problems represent opportunities for new infrastructure plays and in sort of the Web3 space. And I think we'll see a lot of building around that um, in the next five to 10 years. I mean, to give a, a comparison, I'm a, a bit older and grew up sort of during the heyday of, um, you know, uh, modems and early internet and things like that. And the average person, um, you know, in the early to mid 90s, didn't really understand um, how a lot of that stuff worked. And it was mostly, you know, nerds that were using it. And then eventually it picked up and became more popular and got to a point where every business felt like they needed to have, at least have a website and then an online presence. And now it's something that we don't even think about, right? People are on online all day, every day on their phones and on their computer. And it's gone from something that um, was sort of really difficult and challenging to understand um, to something that's sort of omnipresent. And I, I expect that um, we'll see the same with, with crypto and NFTs. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could get into a little bit more what those technologies could be that make this more accessible to everyone. Sure, yeah, happy to. Um, so, you know, for, for starters, I've onboarded... Um, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of uh, artists and collectors into the, the NFT space. And I look at something like MetaMask um, and, you know, it's got all of these different options on it that have nothing to do with uh, with buying an NFT. So there's like the Ropstein test network and, you know, all of these like currency oriented things for pro level um uh, crypto traders that really, if you're not necessarily interested in any of that and you just want to go buy an NFT, there should be a wallet that essentially has like two or three buttons on it, right? Um, that that NFT users can or collectors can use to buy, sell, and trade NFTs. That kind of gets rid of a lot of the ad additional um, uh, headache and complexity that comes with a more advanced uh, crypto wallet. So I think uh, a simplif simplifying wallets would be uh, one example. You know, some of the things that we're working on, uh, again, would be making it so that people can download all their off-chain assets and store them uh, locally without even having to think about it. Just put your wallet address in, click a button, boom, you've got a backup of all your stuff. Almost like when people back up their laptops, right? Like there's there's solutions out there where you can kind of just hit a single button. Oh my God.